You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, what a text that is put before us this morning, the parable of this good Samaritan, which reminds us how we're to love our neighbor. It reminds us how Jesus loves us and how he cares for us and teaches us to repent. In fact, I think this parable is doing three things, but before we get to those three things, I want to make sure that we have the context. We have it in our reading. First, Jesus pulls the disciples aside and reminds them of their blessing. Blessed, he says, are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and didn't see it, and to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. Jesus is the one that the prophets long to see. He is the desire of the nations. He is the promised king whose kingdom is what the faithful kings looked for of old and prayed for. And now the disciples are seeing it fulfilled right before their eyes. God's kingdom comes right before them. And Jesus reminds them. He says, hey, don't miss it. Don't miss the wonder and the blessing of what's right in front of you. Dr. Scare, one of my seminary professors, came to town this week to teach the professors about the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things that he said, it struck me, I've been thinking about it all week, was this. He said, most of your preaching is simply reminding the people of what they already know. We, he said, we always want to say something new, but it's more important to say again the old truths because faith dies with forgetfulness. He went on to there to to talk about the dangers of missing church. When we're away from the preaching, we forget it so people so quickly. We're like these the people that look. James talks about it. We look in the mirror and then we walk away and we immediately forget what our face looks like. In fact, the some of the pastors have noticed. We've been pastors have been talking about this that in the last few years, there seems to be a, a change in what it means to be regular in church. It used to mean to be regular in church meant to go every Sunday to church, but now it probably means to go every other Sunday or to go once a month. That means regular in church. It's a a funny thing to notice that monthly church attendance is up, but weekly church attendance is down in many churches. And this is dangerous because we are forgetful. The Lord Jesus established a seven-day week for us and commanded that we take one of those days and set it apart for the hearing of his word because he knows how forgetful we are. He knows how frail we are, how weak we are, and how easy it is for us to forget. I've, I've noticed, I think you've, no, you've probably noticed the same thing, that most people who leave the church don't suddenly decide that they don't believe in Jesus or they don't trust the Bible anymore, and so they're going to quit. Most people leave church because they fall out of the habit, and then they forget They forget the joy of hearing the forgiveness of sins. They forget what the Bible's even about. They forget about their own sin. They forget about the coming judgment. They forget about the kindness of God and Christ, about faith and forgiveness and and all of this. And so it is, as the scriptures say, good for us to be reminded. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's reminding the disciples of the blessings that they have by being the disciples of Jesus. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see and the ears that hear what you see. And it seems like, at least looking at the text, that there was a certain lawyer who was close enough and was listening into the conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples, and this guy was offended. 
Now, we hear the word lawyer, and we think, well, I, what do you think? The courtroom dramas on TV? Uh, Tom Cruise and a few good men standing there yelling or something. But when we hear lawyer in the scripture, we should think of something very different. In Jerusalem, a lawyer was a person who professionally studied Moses, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And when this guy, this professional student of Moses, when he hears Jesus give the disciples this blessing, he says, now wait a minute, wait a minute. What blessing could these disciples have? What blessing could Jesus be giving them that they don't already have in Moses? You see, if, the, if this lawyer was giving a blessing, he would give something, he would say something like, blessed are the ears that hear what Moses says. But Jesus has said, blessed are the ears that hear what you hear from me. So this guy's offended at Jesus, that Jesus is saying that he's offering something more than Moses is, and so he comes to test Jesus. That's what the text says. He came and he asked him a question to test him. And here's the question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he wants to know, what's the difference between what you're saying and what Moses says? But look at what Jesus does. He answers him with another question. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And so the lawyer answers, and he answers well. He gives Jesus the very best and the very highest that Moses has to offer. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus is going to respond to this. And with his response, Jesus is going to say, yes, this is good. But look, the words of Moses cannot bless on their own. These commands from Moses have to be kept. So Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you'll live. And here we get to the rub, to the thing that we really want to consider, because this lawyer now is going to ask Jesus another question, and Luke tells us why. He tells us what the lawyer is up to. The text reads, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor. Now, our ears should perk up when we hear the word justify. That, that word is our word. That word is at the center of the debate of the Reformation. The Lutherans always have said something like, the article or the teaching on justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Justification is perhaps the most important theological word used by St. Paul. And he'll write things like, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. We know then that we are justified, that is, that we are declared to be righteous and holy and innocent. We are declared by Jesus to be these things by faith and not by our works. Now, justification is the word that the Bible uses to get at this glorious comfort that the Lord Jesus looks down at us and he gives us his works, his righteousness, his doings, his effort. He gives us all of those things freely. It gets, this word justification then gets to the heart of the gospel. But to justify is being used differently in our gospel than it is by St. Paul. 
You see, Luke tells us that this lawyer wants to justify himself. He's not looking for justification from God. But he's trying to find it in his his own works or his own doings. He's trying to declare himself righteous rather than, than being declared righteous by God. And this pushes us to a fundamental truth about our human existence. In fact, I think in this little phrase, we learn more about ourselves than we can in books and books. And it is this, that we, each and every one of us, that we are justifiers. That we are attempting to justify ourselves. Now, I think we've talked about this a number of times recently, but it's good to be reminded that we seem most at home in this world doing just what this lawyer was doing with Jesus. Trying to justify himself. Trying to declare ourselves righteous. Trying to to build the case for our own worth. Now, self-justification comes, I think, in a lot of different forms. We're very creative in the ways we do it, but we can recognize it in others pretty easily. When we're checking out in the grocery store and there's a magazine cover and it's preaching to you that some Hollywood star has started a foundation to save the purple tree sloth in Uruguay or something like that, you see, the, you see justification, self-justification at work. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong, I suppose, with trying to be helpful to the sloths. And if the Lord has given you a lot of money, that's why he's given it to you, so that you can be helpful to other people and helpful in the world. But when you see to it that the, that the news of your helpfulness gets on the cover of a magazine so that everybody can see your good works, then we might start to wonder if this is an attempt at self-justification. And it seems like we see this kind of thing everywhere. Everyone has a cause. Every actor, every musician, every celebrity, even businesses have a cause. That buying this coffee will save that rainforest or support this political agenda or shopping at this store will support this social cause. And they all let you know about it, right? And they ask for your donation. I was trying to buy a piece of beef jerky at the gas station the other day, and they wanted to know if I wanted to use the 43 cents and change to save the world. Now, I suppose that this could all be marketing, but it smells to me a little bit like self-justification. And we see it in others because we see it in ourselves. When we put the 43 cents into the little plastic see-through box, we know that we've done something good, and we feel good about it. Now, left to ourselves, we, all of us, are in the business of justifying ourselves. Our sinful flesh is inherently self-justifying. We are tempted to build this argument with our lives, with the things that we do, with the things that we say, with all of our actions, with all of our purchases, with the clothes that we wear, with the places that we live, everything in our lives. We're trying to to build this argument for our own self-worth. We're making the case that we're worthy or that we're good or that we're whatever. Now, I think just since we're on the topic, it's, it's a particularly interesting thing to consider who we are making the argument for or to. And I think we can reflect on that by asking the question, who am I trying to impress? Who are we trying to impress with all of our efforts and works, posturing? Are we trying to prove our goodness and our worth to our friends, the people that we work with, the people at school, 
or to our neighbors, or to our family, to our dad, to our mom, or to the world, or to ourselves, or to God? Who, who are we trying to impress? Now really, in the end, it doesn't matter, because it's all wrong-headed, all of it. Self-justification stands in direct contrast to God's justification. Self-justification means that we enter into the courtroom of life and we claim innocence and we start piling up the evidence for ourselves. And that's just what the lawyer was doing. And that's why he asked the question of Jesus, who is my neighbor? He wanted to be able to say, see, look, I've kept the law. I've loved my neighbor. I've done all the things that Moses commanded. But self-justification always ends in destruction. It always ends in the judgment of God. If we stand in the case of, in the courtroom of life, and we argue our own goodness, then we are arguing against Moses, against all the prophets, against Paul and all the apostles, against God himself. Which is why Jesus is going to sprawl this man out with the parable. That's the first thing that Jesus wants to do with the parable of the Good Samaritan. He wants to bring this lawyer to repentance. He wants to stop the mouth of self-justification. He wants to show them that he has not kept the law of Moses, that he has not loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he has not loved his neighbors as, as himself, and that this man needs saving. So there was a man beaten, stripped, robbed, left for dead, and the scribe and the priest walked by those whose lives were built around Moses, went by on the other side of the street. Only the Samaritan stopped to help. And with this word that Jesus preaches, this lawyer's attempts at self-justification come to a screeching halt because he hasn't done it. And you haven't done it. And I haven't done it. We haven't loved our neighbor, not as we ought, that he is a sinner, and you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. So Jesus accomplishes the first thing with the parable. He shows this lawyer and he shows us our own lovelessness. It breaks down the facade that we have built around our own righteousness. It destroys every attempt at self-justification. Which is why, by the way, when we come into this place, into this room, and we sit before the holy things of God, His Word and the body and blood of his son, we begin with the great declaration of anti-self-justification, the confession of sins. We say, I, a poor, miserable sinner, plead guilty of God, plead guilty to God of all sins. Because if God is going to justify us and declare us righteous, then we have to be done with our own efforts and attempts at the same. So we repent. Repent of every attempt to build the case for our own goodness. Attempt, repent of every attempt to build up the argument that we are worthwhile and to do it on our own. We repent of every uh, bit of pride that clings to our own works and our own efforts that says that we should stand before God by our own strength. No. We are truly sinners. 
that need a Savior. And when we're there, the parable's going to do something else. This is the second thing that Jesus does with this. It gives us a beautiful taste of the mercy of God. I mean, first, we are the ones walking by the man who's hurt. <laughs> we are the ones who are rushing to Jerusalem with business before God, and we don't have time for our neighbor, and it condemns us of all of these works. But then, next, it throws us in the ditch where we find ourselves robbed and beaten and half dead, unable to help ourselves, where we realize that we need a Savior. And then it gives us, in this beautiful picture, a taste of how Jesus comes along and rescues us. Now, it has become popular and fashionable these days in the Lutheran Church to preach this parable in this way, that Jesus is the Good Samaritan. And I suppose that's, in fact, what I'm preaching right now. But the trouble with this is that it falls short, so short. Because Jesus doesn't just walk by and see us in the ditch and come down and carry us up and take us to the hospital and pay for our treatment. Jesus finds us not half dead, but wholly dead in our trespasses and sins. He, he doesn't see us clinging to life. He sees us gone. And he joins us in that death. Jesus finds us as the, as the rightful object of God's wrath. And he comes and suffers that wrath in our stead. Jesus pays the price, but it's not just the few coins. He gives everything to pay for you. To redeem you. He spills his blood for it. He gives it all. So the good Samaritan is only a small glimpse, just a tiny little glimpse, into the depth and the height and the breadth and width of the love that Jesus has for us. But it reminds us. It reminds us that we are in desperate need of a Savior and that we have one. That our Lord Jesus has scooped us up in the arms of his mercy, that he's cleaned us with his blood, that he's forgiven us, that he has declared us to be holy and righteous, completely apart from anything that we've done or said, but he has done it. He has won for us salvation, and he delivers it to us in his promise of the gospel. And then, when we're all cleaned up, the parable does a third thing. The parable preaches to us that we, too, ought to love our neighbor. That we ought not to be like the, like the scribe and the Pharisee that walked by on the other side of the street, but that we ought to be like the Good Samaritan who sees our neighbor and need and spends for them. That we ought to love one another, not so that God will love us, but because God loves us. We ought to do good, not because we're trying to earn our way into heaven, but because we already have a place there that knowing the love of God in Christ should send us out to love our neighbor. So when Jesus says to the lawyer, go and do likewise, he means it. He means it for you. He means it for me. That knowing the love of God, that knowing that we are justified by the blood of Jesus, that knowing that Jesus himself is preparing a place for us in heaven, knowing that our salvation is sure, knowing that nothing can make God's smile toward you turn into a frown, we are now set free to go out there and love our neighbor and to bless them and to serve them, to pay for their 
oil and wine while they're in the hospital to give them the things that they need for this bodily life and perhaps even bless them with the promise of the gospel so that they have all that they need for the life to come. You see, dear, dear saints, this is our Christian life. That we hear the preaching of the law condemn us and we know that we're sinners and we repent. We hear the preaching of the gospel and we rejoice that the Lord has done everything for our salvation. And then Moses comes back to us to remind us how we in fact ought to love one another and care for each other and bless each other in the name of Jesus. He is our good Samaritan, but he has sent you to bless your neighbor. And in that we rejoice. We rejoice that Jesus has done everything to save us. And we rejoice that Jesus sets us free to love one another. God be praised. Amen. And the peace of God that passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope.